This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth, speak truth. Restart. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's going on, Pastor Butler? Oh, everything. How are you, sir? I can't complain, man. I had a, a pretty good weekend. Uh, well, good and bad. My weekend started off pretty well because I got a chance to watch Courageous Conversations, and that was an excellent. It's something that's done every year by shout out to our, our girl, Lisa Fields, our, our good friend who is the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And what Courageous Conversations does, and I know you're familiar with this, Chris, is it brings together black theologians to talk about theological matters, cultural matters, political matters. Uh, in a way that's kind of unique to our community and really get out some of the differences in, in um, uh, opinions on, on some of this stuff. And it, it was just, as usual, great minds coming together. Uh, you got to see brothers like Dr. Esau McCauley, our brother um, uh, Watson, Jones, uh, Akimini. I mean, there were so many folks there that just did an excellent job representing uh, the faith, uh, some very strong biblical voices you cannot miss this courageous conversations. Uh, I'm sure she'll put it on Facebook sometime. But you, next time this comes around next year, it's usually every Labor Day uh, weekend. You got to check out courageous conversations. You got to check out just the Jude Three Project in general because the Jude Three Project, again, founder Lisa Fields is doing some excellent work, and it's something that you want to support. Any comments on that, uh, Chris? Man, I would just say watching courageous conversations. Uh, is uh, a profound way to remind me that there are so many people in the world who are so much smarter than I am. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is uh, it's, it's, it's refreshing, though, to see uh, that caliber of person, uh, you know, discuss some of these issues and in the context of the black church. So, uh, you know, I, I will just say amen to everything you said. If you did not, uh, I really wanted to actually go uh, this year, but with the campaign and uh, different stuff, it didn't work out to physically go. But definitely, anybody who, if you want to hear good theology, uh, theological discussion, uh, courageous conversations. And as you said, Jude 3 Project, man, there have been so many times in my ministry where uh, the, the, the the way I did the ministry was send somebody a uh, one of Lisa's videos or podcasts. So it's real good work that they're doing. It is an excellent resource. I was actually supposed to be on the um, panel about politics in the pulpit, which was a great conversation actually moderated by our very good friend, Stephen Harris. Um, hate that I couldn't make it. My son had a football game, but 
but uh, definitely watched as much of it as I could and really enjoyed what what Jude 3 has going on. Football wasn't so great, so we're not going to talk about that right now. It's it's too soon. <laughs> um, but but look, there's been a lot being said about this uh, Supreme Court ruling coming out of uh, coming coming from, I should say, this uh, Texas abortion law. We have a very uh, uh, a very good interview that's going along with this. So I'll kind of break down what actually uh, the law was about, what the ruling was about and what it wasn't about, because I don't think a lot of people actually took the time to understand what this ruling from the Supreme Court was about. But a very good interview that we're going to go into now, man. Check this out and we'll be right back. In May of this year, the Texas heartbeat bill was signed into law. The bill prohibits abortions as early as six weeks. Now, that part of the bill is controversial, but not the first of its kind. What's unique and in in my opinion, highly questionable about this bill is that it allows private citizens to bring a lawsuit against any person who performs or induces an abortion or knowingly engages in conduct that aids and abets the performance or inducement of an abortion. Now, to be clear, the woman getting the abortion cannot be sued, but the physician and others who participate can be. If the private citizen who brings the suit succeeds in the lawsuit, they can get $10,000 for each abortion and attorney's fees. Well, in the whole women's health versus Jackson case, the Supreme Court ruled on parts of that matter last week and Twitter virtually exploded with partisans losing their minds. Many conservatives celebrated triumphantly and danced in the streets while progressives engaged in bitter doom and gloom predictions, further explaining the need to pack the courts. Now, let's be honest. Abortion is a very serious issue, and as a consequence, people are going to be very passionate when it comes to the highest court weighing in on that subject. In my opinion, that's understandable. That's not the problem. The problem is that little to no one on Twitter actually knew what the case was about. People were stridently commenting on the ruling before they could have possibly had time to read the opinion let alone understand it. This is an opinion that many legal scholars are still wrestling with. But somehow people with no legal education were writing elaborate concurrences and dissents on Twitter within minutes of the ruling's release. Again, this is a very technical and complicated case. But as usual, partisans on Twitter eager to spite and condemn the other side don't wait for information. They don't wait for understanding, nor do they wait for time to construct a thoughtful response. Commentary must be immediate and vitriolic. It must be unyielding to better arguments or pleas to actually know what you're talking about. Not only were uninformed opinions coming from every direction, the uninformed mobs were trying to force everyone else to loudly and unequivocally state what side they were on. The Ann campaign was accused of not really being pro-life 
because we didn't throw our unqualified support behind the Texas law and praise dance in the streets after the ruling. And again, those making the charge against us did so without ever taking the time to know what the ruling really said. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have made those accusations. If you've been following the Ann campaign for a while, you know our policy is to do our due diligence prior to making public statements. We're very deliberate about not commenting until we're informed, no matter how much pressure is placed on us to do otherwise. And I'll be honest, my full attention just really wasn't on the Texas law. Not that it's not important. Uh, I hadn't followed the court proceedings all that closely. Uh, and so, I mean, to be honest, we just had a lot of other stuff to do. And so what that means, as a result, we weren't going to weigh in until we could sit down and do the research, period. And we're going to stick by that in the future. Those who did their research on this one, though, Ann Camp, understand that this case was about procedure. The court didn't rule on the merits or the substance of the law. The holding just addressed whether or not the lawsuit was proper prior to the law ever being enforced. The court did not overturn Roe versus Wade. The court did not overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The court did not uphold the constitutionality of the Texas law. What the court did was that it refused to stop the Texas law from being enforced based on standing. This was a matter not of substance, but of procedure. The merits of the law, the Texas law, were not adjudicated. You might say, how do I know this? Well, a place to start is the court majority explicitly said so. Let me give you their words. We do not purport to resolve definitively any jurisdictional or substantive claim in the, uh, in the applicant's lawsuit. In particular, this order is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law, including in the Texas courts. Pretty clear to me. But apparently no one or very few people on Twitter took the time to read that line. If they had, the celebration and the utter anguish probably would have been a little more tame. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the legalities here. Uh, I think we've given you, given you enough to kind of understand what was really going on. If you want to take a deeper dive, I would advise you to check out the Dispatch's advisory opinions with David French and Sarah Isgar. Uh, they do a really good job of breaking down the case breaking down the law and helping you understand what did and did not happen here. So if you want a deeper dive, I would recommend going there. There are some other sources. There was a political article, some other stuff that you can look up to get a better understanding of what's going on. But for our purposes, for the purposes of the church politics podcast, just know that the ruling was about procedure, about the technical things that must happen or be fulfilled prior to the Supreme Court weighing in on the matter. Nothing was substantively settled on the merits. The court just refused to stop the law from being enforced, which isn't without consequence. 
but Roe and Casey are still intact. And, and this particular law certainly has not seen its last day in court. All right. So that's how we're going to start off this conversation. But I have a treat for you because you don't just have to listen to me. I'm actually doing an interview with a friend of the end campaign. Sherilyn Holloway is a friend of ours. She's part of the Whole Life Project. She's the founder of Pro Black, Pro Life. And her ministry focuses on the intersection of race, the church and life. She's what we consider an expert on this. Uh, and she goes about it with a lot of passion, but also a lot of thought. Uh, and so we are happy to invite you, Sherilyn, on the show. We are just uh, excited that you took the time to join us today. want to kind of get your thoughts. But before we get into uh, just the abortion conversation in America generally, can you briefly tell the audience about your ministry and why you're so passionate about the sanctity of life? Yeah. So pro-Black, pro-life was founded um, when I saw myself kind of in the intersection of being uh, an advocate for the advancement of my community, as well as the life issue. And I really couldn't find a home. So I created one. Um, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't enjoy social media. I don't necessarily enjoy uh, all the things you just talked about watching those things unfold um, because we offer what I like to call a 360 degree view of the whole life issue where I can stand in a place and I can see everything that's going on, um, the emotion, the experience of everyone involved and realize that um, we're actually not solving the problem and figure out tangible ways for each person in their community serving however um, God has called them to affect their community on these particular issues. And so uh, we have trainings, we do webinars, I have a YouTube channel um, in that we offer just one-on-one strategy, planning, training, whatever you know our clients need in order to be successful. And so that's what we do. That's what we've been doing for a year and a half. Uh, and we love partnering with Anne and, and watching you all, you know, bring these things to the forefront. And I just really appreciated your uh, your statement on this. It, it made my once wanting to be a lawyer heart very, very proud. Well, good to hear. I'm, I'm glad it was helpful. Now, initially, I said briefly explain kind of your passion on this, but you don't have to be all that brief. Talk to us a little bit about just personally why this issue is important to you um, and, and what brought you into this in a way. You know, why did you think your voice was important in this space? So I've made two abortion choices in my lifetime, and um, I made both of those choices because I didn't realize the resources and support that I had outside of my own fears. And it became very important to me that no other woman would feel like they had to make this choice because they had no choice. Um, and so I began my work in the pregnancy centers. Um, I was a development director. I was a community um, engagement and outreach director. And then I was an executive director. And I, I just really, like I said, found myself in a place where um People wanted to hear either one side of the argument where abortion was um, only relevant in when we talked about systemic racism or it wasn't relevant at all when we talked about systemic racism. And being from a very small liberal town, um, it was really difficult for me to 
to not combine the two and not see a place where if we could just get the message out um, that I think more people would understand and understand, you know, what the actual problem is and and start figuring out ways to solve it. Um, so that's a little bit of my story. Um, I really, truly believe that the beginning of making abortion unthinkable is we need to make it unnecessary first. Um, like that's not new. I'm not the first person to say that, but I, I desperately feel that in my heart. Um, and so most of what I teach and I train on and I talk about really stems from that place. Yeah, I, I have this thing where on this and a few other issues. I truly believe that the black church, black Christians speaking into this will make a huge difference, not only because how we're postured in uh, politics. Right. Many of us being Democrats and just having kind of some some leverage on that end. But really, because I think it's, you know, in many ways brings a whole different perspective and whole different voice to the conversation. Now. I know a lot of black women who believe in the sanctity of life are pro or pro-life. Why haven't black women been kind of at the forefront or involved as much in this conversation? What's your thoughts on that? From my just my experience and when I um, speak to our black community, in particular, our black women in the church who are what they consider personally pro-life, it's typically one or two things. One, they don't want to be associated with everything else that comes with that label, whether that means now I have to be a Republican. I have to like like Donald Trump. I have to, you know, do all I have to vote a certain way. I have to, you know, and if if I don't do that, people will at least think I do if I say I'm pro-life. Um, I think the flip side of that is that people feel as though, though, you know, even though they're personally pro-life, that they don't have the right to project that on other people, that they feel like everyone's walk is theirs and that they really just should mind their business. And um, I, you know, from my non-professional point of view, really believe that it's difficult for people to hold multiple issues, that most people can, if they're going to care about something they're going to carry about whatever the thing that God brought them out of that they now want to help other people, whether it be education, health care, um, some type of family services, whatever their, you know, ashes that were turned into beauty. Those are the tens of things that they focus on and trying to give them anything more maybe too heavy. And then there are people like us, Justin, that are like, give it to us. Give it a, give me all the issues, <laughs> you know, we'll carry them all. Um, and I think that when we have these conversations, we you have to keep that in mind that I'm only looking for a light bulb moment. I'm not looking for a conversion. And so if I can have a light bulb moment with a sister in Christ who's saying something like, you know, I just don't believe it's my job to tell someone else what to, you know, what to do. And I can say I can def- I can agree with that. But I do believe it's our job to make sure that our other sisters in Christ and our community have what they need to actually make a decision that they won't regret and make a decision that they actually want to make. And I think by standing off and saying, well, I just don't want to get involved is not helping either. That's good. That's really good. So we're just getting this conversation started. We're going to have one more segment on it, uh, but we're going to take a little bit of a break on the church politics podcast. We'll be right back. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibbity, and we're having a conversation about uh, the abortion issue. I'm here with Sherilyn Holloway, who is the uh, founder of Pro Black Pro Life. She's also part of the Ann Campaign's Whole Life Project, and she is an expert, uh, just someone who who really does a good job when it comes to the conversation about abortion, when it comes to messaging, when it comes to re- reaching out, and maybe most importantly, when it comes to compassion and understanding and empathy. So, Sherilyn, again, thank you for being with us. Explain this to me, because I recently saw a tweet that's basically said, I don't know anyone who's pro-life who doesn't care about all the whole life. Can you explain to me what the difference is between the traditional pro-life movement and more of a whole life perspective perspective or whole life movement? Yeah, so the traditional pro-life movement um, was started, let's just say, sometime in 1974 when Roe v. Wade happened, um, where the advocacy really came for the unborn child in the womb. And uh, that's where the focus was. That's where um, all the efforts were put. That's where um, you started to see a division in politics where um, stances were taken um, and really that divide started somewhere around 1975 um, with the Catholic Church really calling for the Republican Party to kind of stand in the gap, which is ironic for plenty of reasons, but I just won't get into that now. Um, So now as as we've grown and economics and the environment has changed, what we have seen is that the reality is in order for us to really advocate for the baby in the womb, we, we have to advocate for the woman who is actually the one who is in charge of bringing forth the baby Earthside. And it's her circumstances and her surroundings that typically are going to be what makes the choice and the decision. But with that even said, there are so many aspects of that child's life once it's born that have to be advocated for, for them to live a life of abundance. And that we're not just talking about materialistic, but just a life where they have options and um, opportunity to be successful in whatever that looks like in their own eyes. And so the difference between the traditional pro-life movement and what we consider the whole life movement is that we value life from womb to the tomb, from natural birth to natural death. And so Within that, I'm just as concerned about that baby in the womb as I am about the man getting murdered in the street. I'm just as concerned about the health of the baby in the womb as I am about my grandma making sure she gets proper um, end of life care. Um, And so when we think about it from that aspect, the value really is placed on the word life. And even though there was a time when the, the words pro-life meant one thing, um, we can't change definition. 
you know, th- there's a definition for the word pro and there's a definition for the word life. And life just does not mean baby, infant, unborn. It means God's creation. It means image of image bearer of God. These are things that I think about when I think about life. So I can't separate the two. I'm just incapable of separating the two. They um, lives, no matter where they are in their human development, are um, precious and are worthy and um, deserve human dignity and treat the same treatment. And I think that that's what it means for me. And from my experience with the whole life project, that's what it means for them as well. No, that's good. I mean, one of the things I, th- I, I believe that tweet missed was that it's more than just, yeah, of course, you don't know anybody who goes out and says, yeah, I don't care about life after after birth. Of course, nobody says that. Right. But I think what they missed was it's not just about saying that you care about life after birth. It's about the advocacy for the child and the woman that goes along with that. Right. So, for instance, it's, it's trying to make sure when you look at mass incarceration, say this is a you know, these are different life issues that impact. They could even impact whether a, a woman has an abortion or not. And I think that's what I'm seeing. And that's what I'm hearing for you, at least, is the difference between traditionally what has been seen as pro-life and making sure that there's a whole life perspective. It's not saying that people don't care at all. It's asking it's basically it's asking what are you doing about life after uh, a birth and to make sure that those folks are in a good position and to be kind of concerned about their flourishing? A lot of one of the arguments I've heard against the pro-life movement, at least, well, quite a bit recently, is that white evangelicals didn't, Southern Baptists in particular, didn't really care about abortion until more recently. That wasn't one of their big issues. And I think the point is to say, because they didn't care about it then, it's not a real issue now. Now, for me, where that misses the mark is, I don't really care if they cared about it. <laughs> you know, I don't really care when they caught on. I don't care if it was late or even if they're even if they're sincere now. I know a lot of people who are sincere, but that's not really even the question to me. The question is whether it's right or wrong. Any thoughts? And I'm sure you heard that argument, too. Any thoughts about the idea that, you know, it's uh, disingenuous because Southern Baptists weren't even talking about this years ago and now it becomes their biggest issue? How, how would you respond to that kind of uh, uh, that kind of argument? I mean, I probably wouldn't, to be honest, <laughs> kind of like you. I probably wouldn't respond because I feel like that is a distraction. Um, you know, I like to keep my eyes on the prize. So it doesn't, I'm with you. It doesn't really matter to me, you know, when they did. Um, but my eye is on the prize. What are we going to do about it now? Um, you know, if your only stance on it is that it's making it illegal and nothing else, then our work will probably never cross. But if you have plans on trying to figure out other ways to, again, help it become a necessary and serve your community in a way that um, allows for grace and love for women who are not just abortion minded, but those who are also post-abortive, then we can have conversation. And so I think that it it just requires more than just a stance, that it requires action. And so, you know, waiting kind of to see what their action is would be more of what I would do. That's really good. So, so we started off, I started off talking a little bit about the Texas policy, which I see some issues with that policy. I think it's in some ways short-sighted. I think it's kind of wild, wild west. Um, I'm not one of those, you know, we, it is very important to make sure that, that uh, the unborn are, their dignity is 
acknowledged and we do whatever we can to make it not necessary. So I'm with that all the way. It seems like sometimes there's this by any means necessary, whatever we have to do, even if it's short term thinking, let's just get it done right now and win the conversation right now. I think that's bad strategy. But let me ask you this. What would the perfect or a very good abortion bill say and do if you had to write this policy? What would your policy look like and what other things would it consider? I definitely believe, and I don't know. So, Justin, we're very different. My background is human service. <laughs> so I may say some things you're like, that's not policy. Um, so forgive me. Um, but I definitely believe that, you know, Texas missed the mark with their opportunity to expand Medicaid for uh, women and children, and particularly pregnant women and children before the age, you know, under the age of one, even at this point in time in Ohio, ours goes all the way to 18. Um, and so I, I believe that they missed the mark there. And so I would definitely have something added in for those types of things. You know, I feel like it needs to parallel. It needs to just not be like, here, we're doing this. There needs to be an answer to it um, as well. And probably there needs to be a consensus from those who are actually working in these, you know, in doing this work themselves to figure out what that would look like. If we're going to make this law, what do we need? What else do we need in place? Because a lot of what I heard was these organizations saying, wait a minute. <laughs> First of all, everyone's shocked. Everyone is shocked that it, that it even stood. And so now people are, it feels like people are scrambling, trying to figure out like, okay, well, what do we need? And I believe that those are the types of things that need to be included in the policy. What does that mean? So if we're going to do this, then this, if we're not, if we're going to say that once you hear heartbeat, you can't, you cannot have perform an abortion. We'll say that you cannot perform an abortion. Then what? Then you are required to do what for this woman? Those are the types of things that would need to be included for me to make me feel like it wasn't, you know, I never say what people are called to do by Christ. And I think that there are people who are called uh, to this issue who have legislative positions. But I do think like you and myself, uh, Justin, that we sometimes, our flesh sometimes creeps in there and we want to do things any means necessary, right? Because we're fighting the good fight for the Lord. But in the reality, there are so many other times when if I just need to stop and pause and ask the Lord, is this the way you want me to do this? Like, is this how this is supposed to look? And that's kind of the feeling I got when I read this. And when I listened to the po- listen to the podcast you sent me, I was just like, it just feels like something was missed. Um, and that's if I was creating policy again, I've never created policy <laughs> and I've never really thought about it. Um, it would definitely include some answers to the big questions. What now? Yeah. And I know you've talked about some maternal mortality. Uh, can you get into that? You know how that might uh, impact the policy as well? Oh, my gosh. Maternal mortality, infant mortality. You know, if we're not um, granting these women's pro- women proper health care during these pregnancies, particularly black women in Texas alone. I think Texas is the worst state in the union. So in Texas alone, these women are dying um, at a ridiculous rate. Black women are dying in maternal mortality at a ridiculous rate. Why isn't that being addressed in this? Well, now we're going to force them to carry their, these babies. They're already scared. How are we going to address this? Infant mortality in Texas, astronomical. These infants, they're not even making it to one years old. 
How are we going to address that? Why aren't these things being addressed or talked about? Like you said, there's a lot of dancing in the street, but there's also going to be a lot of wailing and mourning as well. Let me ask you this, too, especially when you don't you change the law, but not necessarily the culture. How big of a risk or is a threat of it? How big is the threat that you could see abortions that just were not safe? Right. So they're they're illegal. And now women are going, you know, some people, you know, some people say there's a huge chance of that. Some people say it's exaggerated. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, if you were to not change the culture, but just change the law? Um, you know, that's really difficult to say um, because you have so many surrounding states where abortion is legal all the way to the end of pregnancy. Um, and I know that people are like, well, that's not an option for, you know, a lot of women. And this is what I say to this. If someone tells you that they could erase your biggest problem for 600 bucks, your biggest issue, 600 bucks, start a new life, be fine. Would you find 600 bucks? You would. You would find 600 bucks. So when I believe that whenever we talk about money in this way where they're like, oh, you know, these women don't have the money to go to New Mexico or don't have the money to go to Colorado. um, Desperation says they will. And, you know, I know pregnancy centers and um, organizations that help women are who border Texas are really gearing up for this because they feel like they were kind of like sideswiped. <laughs> like, you don't you don't even know what this does to us in this, you know, in position where women coming to New Mexico don't even an ultrasound. Um, there's just a lot of things that are actually happening that most people who aren't in this realm don't necessarily know about um, a lot of opportunity for they're worried about people having, you know, illegal abortions or back room abortions or back alley abortions. when you can order the abortion pill online and have an abortion in your bathroom without an ultrasound. But nobody's concerned about that. That's nobody's concerned about that. But we should be. Everybody should be concerned about that because that's just as dangerous. And so there are still things and ways Um, I would say that my biggest frustration at this point is that, and I, and I know I put this on my social media, that Planned Parenthood in 48 hours raised over $2 million. Their day of action was September 1st. Now, I don't know if this was anticipatory. I don't know. (laughs) Um, but we did nothing. Um, every pregnancy center I talked to in Texas, um, pro-life organization. I said, how much money do you raise? It's from zero to $200. So this thing happened and people are happy and excited, but no, no resources are coming their way. It's almost like a checkbox. And that is completely opposite of the whole life perspective, because what are we going to do? And these pregnancy centers and these organizations are sitting there like, help. Like we, there's only so much we can do with what we have right now. And if we're going to see an influx of people, we need to be prepared for that. Man, so helpful. Um, you know, at the end campaign, it's it's really important for us to get voices like Sherilyn's out. So we, we're committing to empowering and being as helpful as we can because people need to hear a different narrative. They need to hear people who have dedicated their lives to making a change. And so we know there are voices that feel like if you don't do it their way, then you don't count. But we want to let you know, Sherilyn, we really appreciate you. Uh, we're in line with what you're trying to do and, and willing to help. And thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. 
Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. We will be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I hope you really enjoyed uh, that interview uh, with Sherilyn Holloway, man, she does some really good work. She has committed her life to uh, this cause. And so if you can uh, be supportive, please do, because uh, she is in it uh, for the right reasons, in it to help the church and in it uh, for human dignity, man. So we really appreciate what she does. Uh, on another note, uh, by now you've seen the horrifying images of swollen and raging rivers uh, and flooded roads, flooded subways and cities on account of Hurricane Ida. After ravaging the Gulf Coast, namely Louisiana and Mississippi in particular, Ida then went to the southeast, causing even more destruction. Thousands of people with or without power, almost 50 people are confirmed uh, dead. Many in New York died while trapped uh, in flooded basement apartments. Man, that, that's just tough. Uh, prayers go out to all these folks. I mean, we saw deteriorated, uh, deteriorated roads, bridges and power lines failing. Uh, homes and cars were flooded when uh, urban drainage systems just couldn't handle all the rain that came from uh, the hurricane. In the worst way, Chris, Ida really highlighted our need for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And I know we talked about this before, but I think what happened based on uh, this hurricane brought home the need to talk about this again. And so we're we're going to we're going to we're going to revisit the need for this and, and how important it is. Uh, there were a lot of different articles that were written on it. One in the Miami Herald that I was reading just kind of went into, again, the details of this bipartisan right now. It's bipartisan infrastructure deal. Now, this particular plan that has been signed off on by the uh, Biden administration includes $110 billion to build and repair roads and bridges. Uh, it also includes $66 billion, billion to upgrade railroads. It includes about $60 billion to upgrade the electric grid and build thousands of miles of transmission lines to expand use of renewable energy and nearly $47 billion to adapt and rebuild roads, ports, and bridges to help withstand damage from stronger storms as well as wildfires and droughts. These are things that are affecting us all over the country. 
Uh, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who is leading this effort on the Republican side, says that the bipartisan bill is necessary to make our country more resilient to natural disasters. These natural disasters, again, are exposing our crumbling infrastructure. Uh, This particular article article goes on to say that ultimately repair and replacement of the roads, bridges and other infrastructure damaged by the Hurricane Ida and other natural disasters are likely to be funded by Congress as emergency relief money. But the bipartisan bill will be valuable in providing major investments in future and future proofing. That's the word they use. Future proofing infrastructure. Uh, This isn't something where we should just repair the stuff that's been uh, uh, broken uh, in these storms. We want to prepare so that doesn't have to happen again. Uh, Storms always expose bad infrastructure. That's one of the really sad things uh, that's going on with Haiti. Their infrastructure is so broken. They keep getting hit with storm after storm. Um, Thankfully, we're not in that position. We should be helping Haiti. I want to say a shout out to Rasul Berry, who's actually uh, raising money. And we'll talk about that soon. Maybe even have him on raising money for churches in Haiti um, because uh, the people down in Haiti are just struggling. But it goes back to this really tough infrastructure. Um, And I'd add that, you know, we want to make sure that places that, that weren't hit by Ida who are still have crumbling infrastructure are taken care of now. So we don't have to worry about this before because we're losing lives. Uh, these lives don't come back. We need to take advantage of the opportunity to, to, to write some of the stuff that we've been kicking this can down the road. Now, uh, Chris, you know, as well as I, one of the things that often happens with infrastructure, and especially if you're talking about the infrastructure that you can't see, uh, especially on the local state level, sometimes we tend to kick that can down the road and do things that people can see, right? Do things that people are going to be able to praise us for. I know even here in Atlanta, we kind of waited till there was a billion dollar uh, sewer and water infrastructure problem to actually get some of this stuff done. And that's not a healthy way to go about it. Again, like we talked about last time, this isn't just about uh, how things look. This is about the economy, but most importantly, it's about safety. And unfortunately, we saw that in a real way uh, over the weekend. Now, we see that there's this bipartisan bill, but there's still still some disagreement surrounding the bill. Okay, most Democrats want to pass the bipartisan bill along with a three point five trillion dollar reconciliation bill that includes uh, more measures dealing with climate change and things that aren't properly infrastructure, but things that may be needed in some people's opinion. The reconciliation bill has no support from Republicans. And it's looking like right now that it lacks the support that it needs from Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, although the uh, Biden administration seems to think that they can uh, that he's persuadable, that he can be talked into supporting that, which the reconciliation bill, again, would not need Republican votes. The larger bipartisan bill would because they're going one's going through the budget process. That's a reconciliation bill. The other one's going through a regular process that would need more than just uh, a a majority um, to go along with it. Now, some progressive Democrats, and we've had this conversation, Chris, are threatening to vote against the infrastructure bill if the reconciliation bill bill doesn't come alongside it. The question that many people are asking is, can they afford to go in that direction? Would they really take this nuclear option or are they just uh, bluffing? And that's a question that's a question that will be answered soon. But I wanted to get your your feeling, Chris, just on this 
issue in general, how the storms expose will further expose the problem that we kind of already knew about, but really brought it to a head. What are your thoughts, man? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that the uh, the storm itself has the capacity to sort of reshape uh, the the argument. Um, you know, I I had watched you know and communicated a little bit with folks uh, down in the south, but when the storm moved to the northeast, I actually have uh, a few friends out in New York. And, and one of them put on Instagram that she was unable to get to her car because it was uh, the street was flooded. And I was like, like the street, like like the car, because she said the car was flooded. I'm like, the car is, is like flooded in New York. And, and that's that was like my introduction to this whole thing uh, rolling out. And I know that a lot of people uh had experiences like that. And then you look and you see the subway flooding and stuff like that. And, you know, I want I don't want to get too, uh, this is nothing against like the, the, the Southeast, but you, you are used to seeing bad hurricanes, um, down in like the Gulf. But when you see New York's floodway, uh, subway system flooded, it can it has the capacity to reshape the conversation. Um, even, you know, frankly, the last time we talked about this, uh, you know, and I, I, I was talking about my hope that uh, that the Democrats will be able to get the reconciliation package through. And I think I still maintain that hope. I do maintain that hope. Uh, but it would be uh, incorrect to say that that I don't recognize that this changes the conversation. Uh, and even in, in my own thinking and calculus, uh, it raises the level of import and impact that the infrastructure bill itself can have, uh, and so it, it makes it it makes it I think a little bit more difficult to uh, to ultimately not pass the infrastructure bill. The goal would still be, in my view, to get to get something done alongside this infrastructure bill that goes further, that does more for people. Uh, but I think it does make it a little bit more difficult to uh, to hold the position that you're going to to completely sink the infrastructure bill. I do think that that progressives have the opportunity uh, to still like use leverage that they have to to hold up votes and to uh, and to do all they can to get a, to get both of these packages through. But I would be lying if I didn't say that the storm itself changes the conversation, especially. I mean, this stuff you don't have control over, but you're talking about, you know, you, you got to do this stuff like before, say, like Christmas at the very latest. You got to get something done. And these I mean, people are going to be still like literally rebuilding their homes. Some people won't uh, in the South won't even have returned to their homes yet. Um, and so it, it just changes the way the conversation is going to take place. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Chris. I mean, the progressives who are making this threat were playing with fire before the storm Ida came around. Maybe it was a campfire. Now I think it's almost safe to say that they're playing with a volcano. It, it would be almost impossible, especially when, you know, with the midterms coming up to go back home after all this, people died, right? I mean, miserable. I can only imagine these very traumatic deaths. Jeff's always traumatic, but sitting in a basement that you can't get out of, sitting in a car that you can't get out of, seeing the failing uh, power lines, the failing subways, 
and go home and say, yeah, I voted against this because I wanted to get more like, yeah, but look how much we could have fixed. If this ever happens again, you know, that's this just seems irresponsible not to go along with it. Now, that doesn't mean that that you can't still push. That doesn't mean that Joe Manchin isn't somewhat persuadable. But I think they lose a good deal of leverage if they had a whole lot of leverage before to say, yeah, we're really going to go with this nuclear option. That nuclear option right now, again, just seems somewhat reckless, but you, you never know. I mean, you never know what's, uh, where people are going to go with this. I think it makes it very difficult. I, I think a lot of progressives, AOC and others, are just going to have to depend on the Biden administration to see how far they can push Manchin and others to get something out of this reconciliation uh, deal as well. Uh, again, midterms are coming up. Folks have to make the case to their people, their constituents, that they should be in office. You're already looking at Democratic Party taking some very serious losses, not even to mention that the the jobs report just came out. The jobs report was not very good. I mean, that looks very bad for Biden. This administration is in a whole uh, partially because of their doings and decisions they made, but partially because the situation is just, just tough with this Delta variant. Either way, it's on them, just like it was on uh, uh, Trump. Uh, so when you take all that into consideration, it makes it a lot harder to even have a serious conversation about not voting for this infrastructure bill. Uh, but I'll let you end this, Chris. Yeah, I mean, and I think that this this reality uh, of the storm puts a, a pressure on those progressives uh, in Congress and, uh, and and really progressives in general to do something that economic progressives have been unable to do. And I think this is, is, is their own doing, which is actually talk, especially in this environment where, you know, so much of politics is national, uh, but they can't speak in a way that really motivates Joe Manchin's voters because they spend too much time making fun of and beating up on people because of their uh, cultural and often their religious values. Uh, and so even people and because I think so much in the reconciliation package would be so beneficial to so many poor and working class people in West Virginia. But if you cannot speak to those people because you will not accept their sort of cultural view of the world and what they think about marriage and what they think about gender and what they think about life, which we're going to uh, have a, 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 you know, more conversation about that in the, 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 the weeks and months to come. If you can't speak to those folks, it's very, very difficult then to have them put any pressure on Joe Manchin. And so if you're losing this leverage of holding up the infrastructure bill, the best play you would have would actually be to turn up the heat on the Joe Mansions of the world through their constituents who vote for them. But there are just not enough folks who understand the importance of this uh, reconciliation uh, package from an economic perspective who can actually talk to folks in states like that because so many have paired uh, this sort of uh, economic uh, populism with, with, with I think, a, a very narrow version of, of this sort of cultural progressivism. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate because I, I really wish that there were a, a set of voices nationally who could, who could speak into this moment. And I just don't know that we have those voices.
Yeah. And I think one other thing to consider as well is that there are some things in this reconciliation bill that probably don't have to be there. I think there's some excesses that that allow people to argue against it in the ways that they shouldn't. Um, that's my perspective. I know you, me and you are take little, a little different positions on this, but I think there are some things that could have been left out that make it easier for certain folks to, to sign on to it while still being substantive. Yeah. But we're going to find out how this works out, man. Um, what I'm, go ahead. I was going to say, hopefully, you know, these, uh, legislators are being legislators and put some of that stuff in so that there's something to take out. Uh, but we'll see how skillfully, uh, folks are. Uh, are able to navigate this. But I do think uh, that either way, uh, it'll be it'll be consequential. I do think it'll be better for Democrats if they're able to get both done. I, I do think I'm, I'm more of the opinion today uh, that going back to your district, having missed the opportunity to do this infrastructure investment might not be the best strategy. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in agreement on that, man. So either way, we're going to find out how this is going. I think um, I think the main thing, though, the priority should be making sure we're taking care of these people. So these emergency relief, uh, you know, um, measures need to be taken care of. People are suffering. We need to make sure we're taking care of our people. But guess what? That's not just all on the government. It's on us as as neighbors and making sure that we do what we can to help the folks that are suffering out there as well. That includes supporting folks like uh, Rasul Berry, supporting the uh, the churches in Haiti and all that stuff, man. That's so important. I'm going to get some more information on that so I can, so if folks want to help, you know where to go. But very important conversation. Do not forget the people behind these policies. Well, that's it for us today. And Camp, as always, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of a faithful public witness who loves social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.